right? So, um, welcome to uh, Friday evening Sangha meeting. Uh, Matt has just made a, a point about uh, control. And um, Matt, one of the things that's really clear in the suttas is for each individual one through the practice of Anapanasati and the Eightfold Noble Method is to take control out of your life to come out of Dukkha into uh, Sukha, into a state where there is no Dukkha. Now, um, there's a great deal of confusion about that because there's a whole lot of stuff that we can't control. And that um, the remarkable part is, is that it's actually quite easy to tell the difference with a kind of a rule of thumb. And that, um, as mentioned earlier, there is the AA prayer that basically says, and I think that it predates AA. I think that AA kind of picked it up. It's old wisdom. And that it said in Christian terms uh, of God grant me. But uh, uh, perhaps a better way of introducing it would be may I or shall I instead. Um, but God grant me the, uh, the serenity to change. To, uh, to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can change and the wisdom to know the difference. So there's a really big point about that wisdom and we've got a rule of thumb that is actually uh, specified quite uh, uh, specifically over and over and over again. It's repeated in Sutta number 10. And that is, is that there are internal things that we can control and external things that we can't control. That normally the things on the outside world, there's a whole lot of people trying to control it. And the more people who are trying to control something, the less likely that any one individual there is actually going to be able to control it. But what you've got is a ball instead. Or a better word for it, just more exact, is politics or religion. Okay, and those are the things that are on the outside that we can't control, especially in the society. Um, I don't think that it would be appropriate to say, "God grant me the courage to go kill Donald Trump." <laughs> I don't think that that's what this is all about at all. I don't think that we're going to learn to control very much by going out that way. In fact, we'll find out that we have less and less control over our lives when we go and do things that are downright harmful. And so this is another way that we can look at it is, is that if we are actually intentionally with, uh, let us say, ignorantly, but still intentionally, doing things that cause harm, then that's it. We need to learn to control things in a way that we're not causing harm. And that the way to do that is by gaining some control over one's own mind so that we can recognize that Dukkha is actually wanting something that I don't have. And Dukkha is continuing to go out and trying to get it when I don't have it. And then the more I work for getting what I don't have in order to get it, thinking, ignorantly thinking, that I'm going to feel better if I get what I want. And this is the way that the whole society is working. If we can wake up to the point that suffering comes from wanting something that we don't have, rather than um, the object itself. Oh, it's the object that I want. Let me say it's a new baseball or maybe a new car or maybe a new girlfriend or maybe a new house or whatever it is that I'm wanting. If I think that that uh, item 
is going to make me feel better, then that's ignorance. And guess what? The easy way to figure that out is because that ball or that car or that house or that girlfriend are outside. They're not inside. That what we should actually want then are things that we can have, like wanting the feeling of safety. But that's easy enough to get. Okay. Actually, the first quality of uh, uh, getting the feeling of safety is the physical reality of getting into a safe place. I do not recommend people practicing meditation on the freeway. And if you do, at least do it on a yellow line. <laughs> okay. That's kind of dangerous to be out where, uh, and so this is part of the wisdom to know where things are dangerous and where things are not. Now, almost invariably, people without even thinking about it, they do what the Buddha recommends, which is go to a forest, go to a tree, go to an empty hut. Well, there you are. There you are, Matt. You're in an empty hut. You're there <laughs> by yourself. Yeah. And with that being in that empty hut, that means then that that empty hut is fairly safe, fairly secure, partly because it's empty. Now, if it was empty plus cobra, I would think that, no, it's not so safe because it's not so empty. So that's the first thing, is getting into a safe place. Hey, Damro. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the What's call. What's your name, Uh My name's Nick. Good to meet you guys. Hi, Nick. Hello, Nick. Um, Matt has asked a question about control, about what controls do we have. And the basic answer is, is that we can control the things on the inside, but we can't control things that are out in the world. And that uh, there are many occasions when we try to go uh, control things in the world. A good example of that would be uh, many people are now uh, all hot and bothered about abortion. Many people are all hot and bothered about global warming. And yet, none of us individually can do very much about global warming. That in fact, some of the people who are against global warming will fly around the country <laughs> from one rally to another, uh, burning up quite a lot of jet fuel in the name of stopping global warming. If you really want to contribute to stop global warming, don't go anywhere, don't use any electricity, <laughs> and then you're fine. Um, so, uh, in the sense then of figuring out what we can control is basically what's going on inside one's own mind. That basically we, uh, as a society are taught to be out of control of our feelings. And many cases in regard to that, we're also taught to not have any control over our own mind. That in fact, what we are taught is, is that we're supposed to have control over the environment so that I can go get what I want. And then I'll be happy. But the real teachings of the Buddha is to look inside and recognizing that when we uh, like something, liking things is okay. If you just like it, it's nice. I like it, but I don't want it. And there we're good. But if we like it and then say, oh, I like it a lot. I would like to continue to like it a lot by having it around me so that I can see it a lot. And so we begin to think of it in the sense of ownership. And also in the sense of control. That's my car. I will control it. Guess what? You can't control a car. It's going to rust. 
just going to fall apart. You can't stop it from that. We don't really have that kind of control over physical objects. What we do have some control over is our own mind and our, and our own feelings. Now, how we are taught that we don't have control over our feelings is because our feelings are generally manipulated. They're manipulated through the news, they're manipulated through politics, they're manipulated through religions in the sense of the Republicans want people to uh, be racist. They want people to be against immigration. That's very interesting in uh, a kind of dichotomy like that. I thought that I'd mention it, and that is, is that as far as immigration goes, the employers many employers, many big businesses, especially agribusiness, they want to have immigration. Why do they want to have immigration? So that they can keep the wages low. If we don't have enough people and, a, and too many jobs, then the wages are going to go up. And so there's a great deal of reason to want to have new people coming in who will take the low-paid jobs. Except that the people who have all of the big money uh, support the Republican Party because Republicans are uh, for low taxes and all of that kind of benefit. And then the Republican base is the ones who were against immigration. It's kind of a funny thing like that. Who's in control of that situation now? Nobody. Nobody's in control of immigration. And the reason that nobody's in control of immigration is because you've got competing forces. That this group wants this and that group wants that and all of these people want this over here. And so we, we wind up being quite ineffective when we're trying to fix the world. And when I say world, by the way, I'm making a specific point to, uh, to understand. I'm not talking about the planet Earth when I say the world. I'm talking about human society. That's the world that we live in. It's in the world of human society. If you lived alone on the planet Earth and there was no human society, your world would be completely different. <laughs> and so when we recognize that the world is actually the world of people wanting to control things, And the way to come around with that is recognizing that we can't control the stuff on the outside so much that we can control on the inside quite a bit if we would take a look at it. And when we do, we recognize that all oh, the feelings that we have are often manipulated, intentionally manipulated. An example of that is cops yelling at people. They're trying to make them afraid. Advertisers, they're wanting you to buy their product. They want you to feel that you need their product. A really silly example about that, by the way, is uh, tissue paper or toilet paper. In our society, we need toilet paper, right? Have you ever gone into a public toilet and found out that there was no tissue paper there? How do you feel? <laughs> All right. Disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> disappointed, frustrated. <laughs> what are you going to do with this shit now? <laughs> okay, so, uh, but we don't recognize then that each individual accumulates use of toilet paper so that over our lifetime, each one of us kills dozens, if not hundreds, of trees, consumes it, and throws it away, clogging up the sewer etc. like that. That in fact, uh, tissue paper or toilet paper that comes in a roll is unusual in Thailand. You've got to go to special places that sell it to those people uh, from other countries. The Thais don't use toilet paper. What do they use? They use water. They've got plenty of that. And so washing oneself is actually a cleaner thing to do than to use tissue paper. But we have been taught in our culture to use tissue paper. And 
we don't recognize that we're out of control with that. That if you actually thought about it and had an, uh, a plan, you could find something else to do rather than winding up killing dozens or hundreds of trees. But we're never taught about that. And so our ignorance remains there because of the manipulation from the society. And this goes on and on and on and on. In fact, I have a, <clears throat> a word. The word is greb, G-R-E-D. And the greb is government, religion, education, and business. All four of these are the big things in the society. Big business, big government, big education, big religion. And they're there manipulating us for their advantage. The religions want you to put in the collection pay. The government wants you to vote. The education wants you to come to their facility and pay them money so that they can talk to you. And governments want you to buy stuff. And so we are actually ignorant of the fact that all of these things are controlling us and that we don't have any control over our feelings. In other words, if I want to be happy, I've got to go buy what the business people tell me that I've got to buy in order to be happy. The religions are telling me that I've got to go uh, do what they tell us to do in order to be happy, like take Jesus as your savior. <clears throat> Government wants you to vote. All of this kind of stuff is there that keeps us kind of out of control while the promise is, is that you will be in control. If you go and do what you're told to do, then you'll be happy and you'll be in control. All right. And the reality is, is that we are not actually taught to be in control of the things that we can control. We don't have that kind of wisdom. And so the Buddha gives us this, uh, uh, let us say, rule of thumb about if it's on the outside out there, more than likely you can't control it. Or if you do, it's going to be a lot of work and probably not worth the effort. But there are things that you can control on the inside that will gain you great benefit if you learn to control them. And it, what would be that? We could actually basically talk about it in one uh, phrase called the Satipatthana. That Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, are the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind states that we're in the attitudes that we have, and then the fourth one is the mind's objects. The mind's objects are the ones that are easiest to change. And so this is the one that we begin to work on first. And it's surprised that in Western meditation, in Western Buddhism, they don't teach to begin to start to make changes. And yet this is what the, uh, on the Eightfold Noble Path, right effort is all about. Take the right effort to change. But the Buddhist model is actually a change model, but we're changing certain things. What are we going to change? We're going to change, first off, the unwholesome thought that we have into a wholesome thought. And what else are we going to change? We're going to change the breathing. We're going to actually start to control the, brief, the breathing that the body is doing to start taking long, deep, slow in-breaths and out-breaths and to remember to do that. That basically the, the number one skill that we're going to be developing is the skill of sati, the skill of waking up and remembering that we can make a change. And so the sati is to wake up and to take a look, make a survey, see what's going on. What kind of thoughts are we having right now? What, what am I feeling right now? How is my breathing right now? And so making that investigation, we then have a chance to make some improvements. That in fact, you could say so far that anything that you were thinking in this present moment, could possibly 
be improved. You could add a cherry to it. You could add a teaspoon of sugar. Whatever it is that you're doing, you can make it better. This is what we're looking at, okay? It's just to, to look at what we're doing and to make an improvement. And the way that we start with that is with the thought. Look at how we're thinking and recognize that most of the time we are having unwholesome thoughts. Why do we say most of the time we're having unwholesome thoughts? It's because we're thinking about work that needs to be done, things that need to be done, um, things that we want to acquire, places that we want to go. All of that is what we normally think about. And a better way of doing it then is to wake up to these thoughts of going and doing and have thoughts instead of, wow, I don't have to really go anyplace. I won't really have to do anything. I can just sit here and be happy right here, right now. That's really all that we've got to do is just enjoy our life, enjoy being alive. But our society teaches us all kinds of things are important. A very interesting word important how many things do you have that are important Nick Matt how many things do you have that are important four huh four four things okay can't even really think well, of anything actually if you think about it like this the only thing that's important is, is that you're alive right now, that you're not already dead. You're alive. Mm -hmm. And going along with that, you will be dead in three minutes. You've got a death sentence hanging right over you, and the only reprieve you've got is the next breath. So why don't we make the most of it? Why don't we start enjoying this thing, this, this being alive? Start enjoying the breathing because that's the only thing that's important to you. I mean, imagine that you're about to die. You're on your deathbed and your accountant comes in. You don't want to talk to your accountant. Your lawyer comes in. You don't want to talk to him. The priest comes in. If you're really stupid, you want to talk to him. But if you're wise, you don't want to talk to him. What do you want to do? You want to enjoy your last moments. That's the way of looking at it is this, imagine that this is your last moment. What are you going to do with your last moment alive? In fact, there's a sutta about that. This is very interesting. The sutta actually is where the Buddha is going around asking guys about this. How long is your future? And some says, oh, well, I'm planning on the next two weeks. And others will say, oh, I'm planning on the next day. And others are planning on, oh, I'm planning on taking this next breath. The Buddha said, bingo, that's the one. It plan on taking the next breath and doing it well. That's all the future that we need. Because that's all the future that we really have. Everything else is mental delusion. Now, many of these delusions will come true, but when they don't, we don't get what we want. And so we're back into feeling bad and we don't even know that we chose to feel bad. That's the real point is, is that when we feel bad, it's out of choice. It's an ignorant choice that we make. But at any time that you want to, you could feel good just by recognizing that, yeah, this may be my last breath. Let me enjoy this. Matt, go ahead. So this is going to have an obvious answer, but I've been thinking about it a lot. And it just seems like no matter how big of a house we have, how secure it is, how thick and concrete is, how much money we have, there is no way to have any security outside of right now. And it seems like my life is is lived to try to expand this time so that I have to be a little bit past right now, but I, I can't. 
I can't get anything more than this moment. Right. Actually, one of the uh, things that you just um, mentioned that uh, fits right in with this is that we actually want power. What is power? Why do people want power? Think about it. Security? Lacking power? Right. We want power in order to feel safe. We don't feel safe, and so we want to have power. One example of that is in the Middle Ages, everybody carried a knife. Everybody carried a dagger. Some people carried swords. Nowadays, we, you know, in many in the United States, they go around carrying guns. Why does somebody carry a gun into a grocery store? <laughs> does he really feel that unsafe? And not only that, but that gun makes him unsafe. It makes him a target. Yeah. So we want power in order to feel safe. And yet everybody has that delusion that we will feel safe if we have power. So everybody wants the power that you've got, which makes you a target. The reality is, is that power makes us unsafe. An example of that would be somebody is doing some particular profession, and so they go onto YouTube and they want to get a great big following because we see somehow or another that a big following gives us a kind of a power. But the uh, the other side of it is, is that it also makes us a target. So people start putting in trash comments, and then we begin to feel bad, and I wanted to feel good. That's why I wanted to have a big YouTube channel, so that I would have the power to feel good, and now I wind up feeling bad instead. That's the ignorance of power, that any power that we have is going to be something that somebody else wants to take away from us, so that they can feel safe and secure. And so we then turn this around and recognize, no, what we're going to practice is intentionally feeling safe, that we do have the power to feel safe directly. And that we thought that we did, because if I have some weapon, some cell phone, some knowledge that's going to make me feel safe, then didn't I actually make that decision myself in the sense of that I chose that it was the cell phone that was going to make me safe and I get the cell phone and then I feel safe? Why do I need the cell phone in order to feel safe when I made myself feel safe anyway? That we begin to recognize that we're completely in control of our feelings if we would do it according to the wisdom of the moment rather than according to the past. That in fact, when we were really little kids, we were ignorant about our feelings. And uh, our feelings then began to be manipulated by the adults around us. With the threats of spankings, the threats of um, uh, punishment, uh, promises of uh, delayed gratification, and all of this kind of stuff. And the um, the problem with this is is that we stayed ignorant. We were when we each one of us is born as a victim. You do not have a newborn running for office. You do not have a newborn flying a top gun <laughs> maverick kind of airplane. You do not have newborn babes feeding the world. They can't do it. Newborn babes, in fact, can't even feed themselves. Newborn babes can't even change their pants. This is how we all start out. We all start out completely dependent and completely out of, uh, in the sense of being a victim to our circumstances and surroundings. And we never get over that. We never grow up. We remain victims. And we will victimize ourselves in many, many times. 
whenever we were around an authority of any particular kind, and accountants are authorities in one moment, and then they're not when they go to their lawyer, they become victims again. And so we go back and forth in and out of this victimhood, and we do so ignorantly. We don't recognize that we're victims. So what we're going to practice in Anapanasati is the practice of actually feeling safe, feeling secure, getting the body in a comfortable position so that we feel comfortable. And when we feel safe and secure and comfortable, then we can feel satisfied. And we have control over all of these feelings, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And we do that over and over and over again, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. By the way, these four points are four points that make up the word sukha, and sukha is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. So when the Buddha teaches dukkha, dukkha, naroda, he actually is teaching dukkha, sukha, to get into a state of satisfaction. And when we do this over and over again, we begin to change that old victim's attitude from being a loser being out of control, being subject to the forces of the society. And we begin to feel instead like, hey, I can feel the way I want to feel. I can feel safe and secure. But in fact, in one of the suttas, it's mentioned that there there are seven steps or seven knowledges that bring one to the complete fruit of the soda pond. But the very first step into nobility is when the student has this um, attitude that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, no matter what the, de- the situation is, that we can come out of our bad feelings and come into the present moment and see things the way that they are And when we have that attitude change, we have the attitude of can do, got it. You're the master of your life now, at least in this moment, because you can control your feelings and you know that you can control your feelings. The Buddha calls this the first knowledge that is noble. This is the first step on the path is to gain this attitude that you can change and that you do change and that you have control over this change and that you are the winner here, you've got the control, you're it. This is not only noble, but it is super mundane in the sense of above the world. We're above the world. When we are victims, we're in the world. In fact, we're buried in the world. But when we come to the top of our own game, we become the champions, then we're on top of the world. It's also um, a factor of the path. This is the teachings of the Buddha. And the next point about it is, is that this is not held by ordinary people. Ordinary people remain victims. Ordinary people do not take control of their own lives. Ordinary people do not have the ability to clean out their mind, to clean out their feelings, and to come happily into the present moment. So this is a set of skills that we're developing, and they all come back under the issue of control. Can you control your thoughts? So that you don't have to be angry at someone. You can say, oh, well, I can get over that. That in fact, when we are angry, anger is a very interesting thing. Anger is almost always a cover up for fear. That we get angry when we think that we've lost something or we're about to lose something. That we've been infringed and coached. Something has been, it's gone wrong and we don't like it because it makes us feel insecure. So rather than getting angry, we can, in fact, 
uh, review what's going on. Maybe I didn't need it anyway. If that guy, for instance, uh, that I loaned a thousand dollars to, and I recognize he's not going to pay me back, then the better thing to do is just to forgive the debt. If I forgive him of his debt, then he will, in fact, be very happy and friendly. He sees that as a really nice gesture for you to forgive his debt. But if you hold his debt, and every, or even you don't even have to mention it, your very presence will remind him that he owes you that thousand dollars, and so he will avoid you. And if you forgive that debt, he will then be very happy that you've forgiven your debt. In fact, this is one of the ways of understanding that you have a great deal of control over other people's feelings simply because they don't know that they're actually capable of controlling their own feelings. It would be quite easy for someone who uh, that I owed money to to still be happy with them. Of course, I would want to pay the debt because I want to make them happy. That the Buddha rec highly recommends don't be in debt. To come out of debt. Why? Because that's something to worry about. So uh, we can, in fact, come out of worry about money by not being indebted to somebody. So this is one of the ways that we can say, just like I was talking about, to, in order to feel safe and secure, you've got to get into safe and secure environment, like the empty hut. It's this debt is the same way. That is, is that it's a dangerous place to be in, and we all know it, and we don't like being in debt. And so uh, paying off our debts will then help us to feel better because we know that that's the situation and that we have some control over it. So coming out of debt, um, stop doing the things that we were told to do that we don't like to do long enough to get our mind back into a good state so that we can do what needs to be done with a mind that's in a good state. But we don't do that normally where we go ahead and do what we're told to do and not like it. And the better way of doing it is getting yourself, okay, so never mind about what's got to be done. I'm going to get my mind in a really good state. And now that my mind is in a really good state, I don't mind doing that so much. So this is the way of learning how to control one's life is by learning first to control these thoughts. The first thought to learn to control are the unwholesome thoughts, to come out of unwholesome thoughts like this is bad, that's bad, I don't like this, I don't like that, this needs to be done, and come into the kind of thoughts of right now I don't have to do anything. Right now there's no place to go. Right now I can take a deep breath I just relax. Right now, I can think about being safe. Right now, I can think about being secure. And by thinking about being safe and secure and comfortable, I begin to feel safe and secure and comfortable. And when I begin to feel and think, excuse me, if I begin to think like that I am really, really satisfied and I am successful at feeling satisfied, then we can really begin to control our world because that's the way that we would want to feel. Here's something really interesting. How many times do you go around feeling the way that you would feel because that's the way that you have been feeling, out of habit, as opposed to consciously remembering that you can feel the way you want to feel? And if you could feel the way that you would want to feel, how would you feel? Would you, if you wanted to feel a certain way, would you feel then intentionally feel safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, and successful? Or would you choose to feel uptight, afraid, in danger, uncomfortable, dissatisfied, well, why is it then that we keep going back to those feelings of being unsafe, unsecure, uncomfortable, and unsatisfied? 
when we can practice feeling safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied. But we need to practice this over and over and over again. Then, in fact, I just got a, 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 a message from one of the old students who was saying that he had gotten so much from the Dhamma that he had to stop the practice. And then he went back and he actually practiced doing this and he recognized what enormous benefit this is. But I would highly recommend, no matter how far someone thinks that they're advanced in the path, to keep coming back and practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, to keep coming back and practicing the Anapanasati, to sit down for a few minutes and intentionally put your mind into a good state, intentionally throw the unwholesome thoughts out, intentionally start talking about how good we feel, intentionally bringing the mind back into that position of feeling like a champion, like the one who's got it. Your life is magnificent right now. And so we need to continue to practice this, even though we think that we've gotten great benefit out of it, and then something will happen, a vacation, we get sick, the boss changes his girlfriend, all kinds of things. And for some reason, then we just kind of stop practicing. But it's a really good idea to remember to come back and keep practicing every day, just a little while to get ourselves back into that peak state of feeling the way that we want to feel. To take that control at least once a day, take control of your life. Knowing that much of the day we're going around doing what society expects us to do. And in that regard, we're not in control. We're doing what we're told to do. The Buddha talks about that in uh, a very interesting way. Um, in Paticca uh, Samapada, in the later stages, after the clinging comes, we are then reborn in uh, what is called a woeful state. And that there are four woeful states. The state of hell. And a state of hell would be like uh, desperately trying to get out of something. And we manifest this in the state of anxiety, uh, panic attacks, anger, frustration. And then there's the next one, which is the hungry ghost, the preta. And that hungry ghost is someone who wants something that they don't have. And so they keep wanting it and wanting it and wanting it and wanting it or wanting this and then wanting that and then wanting something else. And they go around constantly being dissatisfied. The picture of the hungry ghost is, by the way, very much like a balloon that's all blown up or a pot. It's got a very, very small lid or small hole in the opening. So that when um, we want to fill the pot, we can't fill it up, just fill it up because the hole is too small. And so stuff just kind of gets in in a, a very small way and it's never satisfying. And we get our minds into the state of not ever getting satisfied. We keep wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting. And if we recognize that we can, in fact, be satisfied, even if we don't get what we want, that we can change that wanting into liking. But the third one of the uh, woeful states is the one that I wanted to mention, and that is the animal world. Now, the animal world, we normally, uh, Westerners will think of re being reborn as an animal is like being reborn as a mosquito or a worm or um, something like that. But what the Buddha was actually talking about was domesticated animals, draft animals, animals that are put to work. Donkeys that you ride on. If you were a donkey, would you like people riding on you? No, you don't have any choice about it. That's the whole point about being a dumb animal is we have to do what we're told to do. And we are naturally going to resent it. So doing what we're told to do and not liking it is the state of mind that many Westerners are in. That's our favorite woeful state is the state of doing something that we're told to do. 
And the funny part about it is, is that it's often our parents in childhood that are telling us what to do now, and we remember those things, and we repeat them. We've got a script that we play of how things are supposed to be. Buddha calls this Silabhata Paramasa. The psychologists call it the superego or the uh, parent ego state. So when people are saying, well, I do what I want to do, nobody's telling me, oh, yes, you are going around telling yourself what to do a lot, and then you resent it. Like, you got to get up and go to work today. You don't really want to get up and go to work today, but you're told that you've got to go to get up and work today. And you're given lies like, if you don't work, you don't eat. And yet there are millions and millions and millions and millions of people upon the face of the earth that eat and they don't work. There's awful, an awful lot of people, even probably even more, that do work really hard and they don't eat, not well. And so this old adage, if you don't work, you don't eat, is, is, is a, one of the lies that we've been told in order to control us so that we become dumb animals doing what we're told to do, not getting the benefits of the rewards that we were expecting. And so one of the things that we do have control over is at least not going into that mind state of being the dumb animal, that we can choose to do what we're going to do happily, our choice. I can get up and go to work today, but the attitude about getting up and going to work today is my attitude, and I have control over that. So I can go to work today, zippity doo die, zippity a, my oh my, what a wonderful day. Or we can go to work with, oh shit, what's the boss gonna do today? You know? And we have complete control over those kinds of thoughts, that we don't have to be that dumb animal. We can be enthusiastic about our life, but we have to practice that because we have been practicing doing what we're told to do and resent it. We're quite excellent at doing what we're told to do and resent it. It's an old habit that we don't even recognize that that we chose to resent it. We chose to resent it when we were little kids. That's how, I mean, we're really stupid when we're little kids. And so we grow up in that stupid thing of doing what we're told to do and hating it, resenting it. It can be many different things. An example of that is getting a visa. How about going to the DMV? You're going to drive a car. You've got to have a driver's license. How many happy people do you meet at the DMV? Why is everybody so miserable at the DMV? (laughs) Why? Because they're in the habit of doing what they're told to do, so they do it, but they resent it. They don't like it. But if you are at the DMZ, can you remember to wake up and recognize you've got control over how you feel, even though you're going through the the duties of the DMV, you can still feel the way you want to feel. Your choice. This is where we have real control. We may not have any control over whether we've got a driver's license or not, because in many cases we've chosen to live a lifestyle that we live, that we have a driver's license. I've got one too. To be honest with you, it expired in 2010, but it's still a driver's (laughs) license. (laughs) And so... um, This is the whole idea, then, that we're discussing, is is that much of the teachings of the Buddha have to do with controlling how we think and how we feel, controlling the body, controlling the breath, and we do that in this present moment. We're not making plans about feeling good next year. Or maybe when I do this, that, and the other thing and put in 10,000 meditation hours, then I'll be enlightened. Then I'll be happy. That's the way that we apply that uh, Western mentality of delayed gratification. And so here we have people coming into meditation classes with the concept of delayed gratification. 
oh, I'm not supposed to feel good now. I just started meditation. I'm supposed to feel like I've always felt. And I'll have to delay my enlightenment for another 20 years or so. Got to be an old man or something before you can feel good. And so the real practice then is in this moment, when we first sit down, that's the time to start working on getting the mind in a really, really good state. This is one of the reasons, by the way, is why I recommend instead of practicing for a long time, you know, many people, many places, they recommend to sit for an hour or to sit for 45 minutes. And yet the human attention span is not that long. Our attention span is normally about 20 minutes. And so what we should do is within that 20 minute time frame, practice and get some success right away. And in fact, if we want to sit for an hour, let's do that three or four times during the day. 15 minutes, four times is a much better practice than one hour because we're going to get tired. We're going to get frustrated. But the, uh, we're going to forget about the breathing. The mind's going to get dull. And then we have all kinds of dreams and imaginations and whatnot that some people call past life experiences or uh, wow uh, meditation experiences and then think that these experiences have some value. The real value is when you learn to control your mind so that you can feel the way that you want to feel and then you don't have to go having these mystical experiences or getting these magical powers or uh, whatever that people are wanting and don't have. That's the problem is, is that we want things that we don't have and that we see that in the world. And so we say, oh, I'm going to go do that same thing in meditation. I'm going to go practice trying to get something that I don't have. The real practice of uh, Anapanasati is to go get what you want right now based upon what you can control. And what you can control is your mind. What you can control is your breathing. What you can control is your mental states. And you can therefore control the way that you feel. Your choice, all you have to do is to remember that it's your choice. And then we take the right effort. Now in the beginning of practice, effort is real. We actually have to take um, almost like training a pony. The mind has been out of control and it doesn't want to go in the direction of happy wholesome. It wants to continue going to the to the to the sewer that it's lived in. It thinks that's home. And so we have to keep bringing the mind out of the sewer, cleaning it up, dusting it off, and starting again. Over and over and over again. And so that's a skill to be developed, is right effort. But when we begin to change our attitude, that attitude change makes the work easier. The effort becomes easier when we've got the right attitude. Little example of that. That is, is that mom uh, is in a family with a teenage boy and the, uh, the house rule is, is that he takes out the garbage. So she goes into the kitchen and she sees all this pile of garbage and so she yells at her son and says, hey, Go take out the garbage. Well, he says, all right. And he picks it up and he hauls it out to the road. The next day, he comes in by himself. He sees that garbage in the, uh, in the kitchen in the new time. And he says, mom will be really pleased if I go ahead and take out the garbage now. And so he picks it up and hauls it out to the road. Now, it was the same amount of garbage today that it was yesterday. But which one was easier for him to do was it easier for him to do it when it was his idea or was it easier to do when he was told to do it the former uh-huh yes so this is the whole point is is that when we recognize it as our own mind is dirty and that we have the ability to clean it up then we can do it with a good attitude and it's easier to do it it's easier to clean up the mind when you say, hey, I can do that. 
But when we have thoughts like, oh, it's so hard, oh, it's tough, then the right effort has actually a bad attitude working against it. And so uh, it's, a, it's a process that builds up, but in that way, we can still get enormous benefit right away by taking the effort to say everything really is okay. Now, uh, often students will practice and get some value and benefit, and then later they will go back to the old habits and say, oh, I used to have it, and now it's gone. And they don't recognize that all they have to do now is what they did before. And that is take the effort to throw the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and come back to the present moment happily. Your choice. We've always got that choice. We don't have the choice to go fix the society. We don't have the choice of fixing global warming. We don't have the choice of building a new government. But we do have the choice of being able to be happy regardless of what kind of government there is. Ah, it's all up to you. Your choice. But you can do it on the inside, and we don't have a lot of choice of doing it on the outside. Build pyramids, build railroads, but we don't know how to build society because the society that we live in, no one really enjoys. Everybody wants to fix the society. Right? Guess what? Nobody can fix the society because there are seven billion people trying to fix it, each in his own way. Can you imagine an alarm clock that needed to be fixed and you've got it at three different jewelers at the same time? <laughs> Or the idea of too many chefs spoil the pot. There's too many chefs in the kitchen. And they wind up arguing rather than fixing food. So that's the problem with society is, is that people are arguing way too much about what needs to be done and nothing ever gets done. So that's what we can't change. Let's have the wisdom to recognize we can't go change and fix society. Maybe we can help cheer up one friend. That's what we can do. But we can only cheer up one friend at a time if we already have cheered up the first friend, the you in there. That's the one that needs to be cheered up. And that you can do. So, Matt, does this answer your question? Yes. We have anything else to say? Miguel, do you have any comments? This says uh, live Erdik Smith. Is that your name? Oh, oh, Nick. Yeah, that's me. Uh, that's my last name. Say your name again. It's Ernie? Nick. Can you hear me? Oh, that's my last Nick. name. Yes. Okay. You can just call me Nick. Okay. I really enjoyed the talk. It was really nice uh, being with you guys and uh, yeah, meeting you guys in person or online, I guess. Yes, welcome aboard. I'm glad to see you. You can give me a call on your own later if you want to, and we can talk about uh, things more specifically. Be great. I highly Thanks. recommend that. Yeah. I don't even know what I would ask. Um, yeah. I know That's exactly I how to answer, though. Okay. You <laughs> may not know how to ask, but I know how to answer. <laughs> yeah. Been doing I, I love the videos. I've been watching for many months. Been active uh -huh. on the Discord, too. Welcome aboard. I'm glad that you've uh, come on. Let's go sailing. Yeah, yeah. Miguel, do you have any st extra statements to make? Anything that we can finish this off with? 
Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I'm just kind of empty. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish this off with the um, a couple of things. One is is that even if we have gotten some value, it's still, um, let us say, quite useful, valuable, and wholesome to continue to practice every day, spend a little bit of time getting yourself back into a really, really great state. And you only have to practice long enough to get yourself into a really great state. If you practice according to a clock, then we practice our meditation the same way we live our lives with clocks, putting in the time thinking that if we put in the time that we'll get the value and we'll get paid for the time we put in. So this is not that kind of clock. So I would not recommend that you sit down with an idea, I'm going to sit for 20 minutes. Better way of doing it is sit down with the intention of, I'm going to get myself into a pretty, really beautiful state. I could do that. I could just lay here and just enjoy. <sighs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. you really fun. Fun. All right. Thanks, Tom All right. We'll see you guys soon. Yes. We'll see you later. Bye, Miguel. Bye, Bye guys. Bye, guys.